After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord called to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he could not cut the birds and did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Good morning, church. Thank you for coming to church on Valentine's Day. Guys, in case you didn't know it, it's Valentine's Day. Uh, My wife came to me last night and uh, brought me a couple of boxes of heart-shaped candy, which I really enjoyed and enjoyed. She kind of looked at me expectantly, and I just nodded my head, and uh, then I surprised her. I walked into the kitchen and pulled out a two-pound heart-shaped ribeye, (laughs) because guys, nothing says I love you like a two-pound heart-shaped ribeye, which we're going to cook today for dinner, right? So it's Valentine's Day. Log on for more love and romance tips from Jerry Clem at, uh, no. (laughs) Yeah, right. 
<laughs> you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when we studied the second part of chapter 12, where Abraham fled to Egypt, we, we parked on the idea that there will be seasons in our lives where we're on spiritual mountaintops, where maybe we experience God's work in our lives, his, his presence in our lives, a season of just sweet fellowship with the Lord. But oftentimes on the heels of that season will come the valley of testing. And, and we saw this in chapter 12 where Abraham, he had been walking by faith. He had been experiencing God's presence in and through his life in magnificent ways. And then a famine hits the land. If test occurs, he's in the valley of the test and he relies upon his own wisdom, his own way of doing things. And that leads to some terrible results. In chapter 13, where we were last week, he is again tested. And again, the test centers on the land. It's not sufficient for he and Lot. And so he's presented with a decision that he has to make. He's at a crossroads again. But, but this time, he doesn't do things his way. He trusts in the Lord. It's Lot who decides to, to go a certain way according to human wisdom and, and human abilities. And we know how that story worked itself out. But, but in both chapters 12 and 13, Abraham's being tested, and specifically the focus of the test is on God's promises as it related to the land and what that signified to Abraham, which was security, right? It was security and prosperity that was associated with those land promises that was being tested. Well, here in chapter 15, where we are today, it's not the security of the land promises, it's the significance and the posterity of the seed promises that God had made to Abraham that is now center stage. Now, Genesis chapter 15 and chapter 17, which we're going to study next week, are without a doubt two of the most important chapters in the Bible. They contain uh, truth and concepts that uh, really provide a framework and an explanation for understanding the rest of Scripture. Um, if you want to understand the Bible and what God is doing in redemptive history, uh, if we want to understand that, we have to get our heads and our hearts around the truths and the concepts that are in these passages. Maybe to put it another way, maybe stated a little more negatively, um, there will be a huge gap in the foundation of our faith and we will not connect important dots within the Christian faith if, if we do not grasp what Genesis 15 and 17 are bringing to us and if it doesn't take seed in our hearts. So for those of you who like to take notes this morning, we are going to study chapter 15 by first seeing Abraham's fear and doubt, and then God's reassuring covenant that he makes with Abraham. And then finally, we'll close out by seeing our place in God's Abrahamic covenant. In verses one to five, Abraham expresses his fear. Verse one says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In that one verse, actually, let me go back to it. In that one verse, for the first time in the Bible, we have two things occurring. One, 
We have God communicating to a human being by way of a vision. This is how God would normally communicate with his prophets. And you see this in later books of the Bible. But here in Genesis, we see God doing this with Abraham. In fact, he's the only person in the first five books of the Bible that God interacts with in this way. He receives a vision from God. And second thing that appears for the first time is God saying those two little words that he will say multiple times throughout the scriptures, fear not. There's a reason why God is saying this to Abraham and why God is comforting Abraham. And the foundation for that explanation is actually in chapter 14, which we, we kind of just alluded to last week. In chapter 14, we see Abraham leading a, a military rescue mission, a, a special ops mission, so to speak. Lot is wrapped up in conflict that takes place around the city of Sodom. Five warlords, city-state kings, come over and they attack that region and they sack the city and they take off all the treasure and the, the spoils of war. And in that process, they take... Um, Lot captive, and of course the, the typical thing was you ransomed them back to the family. Well, rather than paying a ransom, Abraham gets his men together. They pursue them. They launch a special mission, and miraculously, they defeat these five warlords and those in, their, their soldiers. They get Lot back, and they get all the spoils of war that had been captured from Sodom, and they take them away, and they return. On the journey back, they interact with an interesting person, a man by the name of Melchizedek, who's the high priest of God in the city of Salem, which we think was Jerusalem. And at that interaction, you see Abraham doing something that, again, throughout the Bible takes place, a returning of the tithe of the spoils of that war, that income that he received to honor God and to honor the priest of God. But what happens in that interaction is the king of Salem comes along, or excuse me, the king of Sodom comes along, and he says to Abraham, listen, Abraham, thank you for doing this great job. What I'd like you to do is I want you to take a certain percentage of these spoils of war as your reward. Now, there's a lot going on there. First of all, Abraham didn't need to be told that. It wasn't the right of the king of Sodom to tell him, oh, you can have these things. It was Abraham's right by custom that if you went into war, you got to keep a certain percentage of the spoils of war as a reward for what you just did. And so the king of Salem, Sodom is coming in behind him, and what he's actually trying to do is he's trying to establish a relationship with Abraham where he is the benefactor to Abraham, and Abraham is now obligated to serve the king of Sodom, and Abraham will have nothing to do with it. And so at the end of chapter 14, Abraham looks at the king of, of Sodom and says, uh, take a percentage? Absolutely not. I will not take one thin dime of your stuff. Take it all back. I'll not be obligated to you. I'm obligated to God. That's the Jerry Clem version, okay? That's what happens. So in a very short period of time, Abraham has offended the strongest king in the area, the king of Sodom, and he's attacked five warlords with armies who might be bent on revenge. In my book, that's qualifications for being a little anxious, right? And being uncertain and fearful. 
But there's also more here, and and you kind of get it in this language. God says to Abraham, I am your shield, your reward. Those words are intentional. That word shield is the idea of being your benefactor. You were right, Abraham. You didn't accept the king of Sodom as your benefactor. I'm your benefactor. You didn't take his spoil as your reward, which is what that word literally means, the money that you give a mercenary. He says, instead, I am your reward. What a beautiful verse. I am your shield. I am your reward. And you might expect Abraham to say, thank you, God. That is, that's beautiful. That's reassuring. But instead, those words open up the floodgates of of Abraham's heart. It kind of triggers Abraham. He doesn't come back with, that is just beautiful. Can we sing Amazing Grace, right? None of that. Instead, you read Abram saying, oh Lord God, but Abram said, but Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. You know, if you think back to chapter 12, what's happening here, Paul, uh, Abraham is alluding to something he had been promised in chapter 12. In chapter 12, as he's walking with God, living by faith, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, right? And, and so Abraham is expecting this gift of a son and it has not happened. He is well into his 70s now. And, and Sarah is now well into her 60s, and, and, and she's barren. She's not had a child. It, it's so bad that he's been waiting on God. He decides, you know what? I need a risk mitigation plan. And so, you know, Lord, I've, I've got a risk. Just in case, Eleazar is now my heir designate. See, in the, in the ancient world, this was common. If a, if a, a person of means did not have uh, an heir, they would designate a servant in their home that, you know, was, or maybe even a slave that was in their home and say, listen, we're going to enter into a contract, a covenant. You're going to be our caretaker. You're going to be the caretaker of the estate. You're going to see us through all the way to when we're in the ground and dead and buried. And as a result of your caring for us, you will inherit the estate as your reward. So God, I have this in place with Eliezer of Damascus. So He's been waiting for a son, and it hasn't happened. He's, he trusts God, but he's afraid. He, he doesn't understand. He's got doubts as to how this is going to arise. And in verses 4 and 5, God answers Abraham, and he assures him, and he clarifies what he intends to do, what he alluded to in chapter 12. He says, nope, it's not Eliezer. Nice idea. Nice thought, that's not the plan. That's not how this is going to work out. I am going to give you a son, and his descendants will be so many that it will be impossible for a human being to number them. And so God clarifies this. But what's interesting to me in this interaction between Abraham and God is how much Abraham's fear and doubt so often mirrors the fears and doubts of God's people. 
For some of us, our fears and the corresponding doubts that come from them, they center on God and our understanding of God. We trust God, but things are not working out in our life the way we think they are supposed to work out, and we begin to wonder, did I misunderstand God? Did I, did I, did I get confused? Were the details mixed up with me? You know, God, did I miss it? Was I not supposed to marry this guy? Because it's not working out the way I thought it was going to work out in the way I thought you told me these things work out. It, it, God, did I miss it? Was I not supposed to, to move to Palm Bay and take this job and, or to come and join this church? God, did I, did I miss it? And we, oftentimes our fears, our doubts, they center on God and our concern. Maybe did we miss it? We don't understand why he's operating the way he is. And like Abraham, we wonder. And then we plan accordingly to our doubts. Now that's at best, at worst, when God is the focus, our doubts flow out of our fear that God is not who we thought he was or that he is not going to do what we thought he was. He's not as loving and good as we thought he was. That's at its worst when doubt becomes destructive. So for some of us, our fears and doubts are focused on God. For others of us, our fear and doubts stem from ourselves and when we center on ourselves and we think about ourselves and our abilities, there's no way I can do this. I, I kind of think some of this maybe was going on with Abraham. And you see later when they laugh at God, at the idea that they're going to have children. I mean, it's natural when you're in your late 70s, even back then when people lived a longer life, right? Essentially, maybe the equivalent at this point is that, you know, Abraham is, is well into his, you know, what we would say his 50s, and, and she, uh, Sarah, is well into her, what we would say is 40s. Maybe that's a rough equivalent. And women well into their 40s typically don't have babies, right? Even today. And so it's natural for him to doubt, we don't have the ability to carry this off. Sorry, we're just too old. And not only that, Sarah's been barren her entire life. Not like we haven't tried, right? Not like we didn't do every version of the ancient world's fertility clinics. We've done them, and they didn't work. Regardless of our focus, though, of our fears and doubts, whether it's God-centered or centered on ourselves, the assurances that God gives Abraham are the very same assurances he gives us. You know, this week I had just a sweet time in my own personal worship, and in the, the reading of the Psalms, a portion of the Psalms that I was reading, I came across Psalm 115, where God says this to all of us. All you who fear the Lord, all you who worship me, follow me, Trust the Lord and hear the language of Genesis 15. He is your helper and your shield. He is your benefactor. He is your reward. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. This passage and the way God interacts with Abram and Abram interacts with God is instructive. I appreciate the fact that it reminds us that God does not reject those of us who bring our fears and our doubts to God in a healthy way. I'm so glad that Abraham gushed out and didn't just suck it up and cover up what he was thinking and feeling. He brought to God in a healthy way what was occurring in his life and interacted with God from that basis. Living authentically before God and before other people is indispensable to a vital life of faith. There's a reason why 
the very first value of our church is living authentically before God and others in biblical community, bringing our struggles, our doubts, our fears to God in a healthy way. It builds our faith. It helps us to enjoy and worship God more. You see, fear, our fears, are often the seedbed of our doubts. It's unhealthy spiritually for us to suppress these, to not acknowledge these, to not bring them out into the light. For, for us, if we so often the case put on a mask and I think for some of us, maybe the way we were raised, we almost feel guilty if we lift our voices in frustration to God. Or if we even voice complaint about not understanding, it's like, that's not proper for the children of God to voice their, uh, their fears and their anxiety, their concerns to God, just accept it. And it's a, a form of Christian stoicism. God never calls on us to just stuff it and put on a face, a mask, and fake it till you make it. Not at all. He advocates and he encourages us as we see with Abraham coming authentically before him and laying it all out there in a healthy way. Now notice, I said in a healthy way. Abraham expressed his fears and the doubts that were coming from those fears in a, in a spiritually and in an emotionally healthy way. Some of us, we've practiced this in an unhealthy way. I can look back on my own life and I can see seasons of my life where either in a, in a very unhealthy way, I suppressed and pushed down and masked the fears and doubts I had and would not acknowledge them or I vocalized them and brought them out before God in an unhealthy way to my detriment and to my spiritual defeat. You see, an unhealthy doubt is the kind of doubt that acts as a judge of God beforehand. It, it demands, essentially, that God appear before our personal judgment seat and, and vindicate himself to us, to give an account of himself to us, to explain how on earth could you ever do that to me? Or what are you up to? This is not our agreement. And it comes from an attitude of, of it really essentially what it is, it's revealing the self-lordship that is reigning in our heart where we see ourselves as the Lord and masters of our lives and therefore it's acceptable for us to accuse God for not doing what we think he should be doing. So there is an unhealthy way to bring our fears and doubts before God and that will certainly destroy you spiritually, but Abraham shows us a healthy way. To, to this voicing of, of fear and doubt, God gives Abraham reassurance by way of a covenant. Uh, what we have here is an ancient uh, device. We're going to kind of explore it for just a moment. It begins with God saying, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then you hear the doubt and of what's going on in Abraham's life. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I'll possess it? 
How do I know that this promise that I'll have a son from whom descendants will derive that you can't even begin to count as a human being? How do I know that that's going to happen? How do I know that this land is actually going to work out the way you've talked? And God, in response, cuts a covenant. Literally, he cuts a covenant. Now, verses 9 to 20 are a bizarre scene in our world, okay? But here's what's going on, okay? In chapter 12, God alluded for the first time that he was going to make a covenant with Abraham. In chapter 15, where we are right now, he inaugurates this covenant. And in chapter 17, next week, he finalizes it and concretizes it, right? That's, that's the flow of what's happening with God and this covenantal interaction with Abraham. It's kind of, it can be hard for us to understand this because we are a, a written word, paper-oriented people, Right? You enter into a contract, you, you, you agree with a guy to build your house, right? Do, do you accept, okay, yeah, I'll show up, I'll build that house for you for $150,000. Okay, I'm going to start next month and it's all going to work out great. Okay, thank you. Looking forward to it. Uh, here's the check. Is that how you do it? Of course not. We have elaborate contracts, right, with stipulations and obligations and penalties and all of these things spelled out, and then we sign it, and it's authorized, and it's sealed, and so it has legal weight. That's how we work. Well, listen, they didn't have paper, right? They're still, this is still the time of, of the world where, you know, they're pounding things out on stone tablets. And so a, a contract, a covenant didn't work that way. Okay, instead, they were a verbal storytelling people. They would, they would do something that was a graphical illustration of the covenant that they were entering into, much like the Lord's Supper as an illustration of the new covenant, right? And so that's what we have here. In the ancient world, if a king wanted to grant, say, a warrior who had done something mighty for him, a land, a, we'll call it a royal land grant, this form of a covenant was what was created. It would start out with the king identifying himself, and that's what God does here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of herd. He's identifying himself the way the covenants work. And then in that day and age, what they would do is they would take animals, they would cut them in half, they would split them apart, create a walkway, and the parties of the covenant who had the obligations of that covenant would then walk between the pieces. And what they were saying when they walked through those pieces was this, everything that we have agreed to, if I do not follow through, if I do not obey and, uh, and accomplish it, may I be ripped apart like these animals have been ripped apart. May I be ripped limb for limb. This is the penalty if I don't follow through with the covenant. That's what's going on here. God is cutting a covenant with Abraham. And we need to get our heads around this. And the reason why is because many of us through the years have perhaps been raised in evangelical churches of different denominations and stripes, and we've had teachings of different way. And, and one of the things that settled in decades ago and still persists today, you'll, you'll pick up on this, is this idea that, you know, in the Old Testament, God is this, you know, he's like a mean dad God, Right? He's wrath and judgment and vindictive and, I mean, genocides and this and that and law. God is all law. Then we come to the New Testament, and God is loving and gracious and Jesus. And aren't you glad that we, are, we have the God of the New Testament and not the God of the Old Testament? Aren't you glad? That, folks, is a horrible, horrible 
distortion of Scripture. Because God is a God of grace. And what we have in chapter 15 is yet another chapter in God's book of grace, the covenant of grace. Remember back when we were in Genesis chapters 1 and 2? God made a covenant with humanity, a covenant of works. And that covenant was very simple. If you obey me, you live. If you disobey me, eat of the one tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, you die. That was the covenant, pretty simple. And what does humanity promptly do? We disobey. God would have been justified at that point, according to the covenant of destroying humanity, wiping his hands of us and going on his merry way. But in chapter three, God begins something that begins in Genesis chapter three and it goes all the way to the end of Revelation. And it's the book that I like to call book of grace. The Bible's all about God and his grace and how he interacts with us through grace. And in Genesis chapter three, you have the first chapter of this book of grace. And it is a covenant that says there will come the seed of the woman who will rescue humanity and restore creation. And then you move a few more chapters into Genesis nine to 11. And you have the second chapter in this book of grace, this covenant of grace where Noah and the ark, and remember, God says, never again will I destroy the earth. And here's the sign of my covenant, the rainbow. Remember that? Nod your head. Yes, up and down. All those of you who are here, good. No, you're awake. Now we come to the third chapter in God's book of grace that he is writing. And, and in every chapter, he unveils more and more his character and what he's up to. And so this chapter It's all about God's grace. God's grace is everywhere in this chapter, right? He's he's condescending to answer Abraham's doubts. And he assures him that he is going to have a rich heritage. He actually gives Abram rich, detailed, prophetic, prophetic details and prophecies of what's going to play out over the centuries and his plan for the redemption of humanity. If you read that, I mean, he gives very specific details. His grace is even seen in how he delays and and has the children of Israel in slavery of Egypt for 400 years, 430. Why does he do that? He says in this chapter, because I'm giving the Amorites time for their their sin to evolve (laughs) and for them to to sink into this depravity of sin. Remember, the children of Israel are hearing this from Moses. And they're being told, you're to go into the land and you are to kill every man, woman, and child that lives in the land. At this point in history, the Amorites are allies with Abraham. He's living in their land. He's friends with them. They go with him on that attack against the kings in Genesis 14. But God says, I'm giving them time for this sin. It's going to multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply through the centuries so that when the children of Israel come into the land, they are not committing some horrendous act of genocide. They are my instrument of righteous judgment and vindication for the innocence and the blood of the innocents that are shed through the centuries by these people. But most importantly, the way you see God's grace is how this treaty, is, this covenant is ratified. You have that whole scene where 
You know, Abraham, he fights off the birds during the day, you know, and, uh, you know, so God tells him to do this at night, wakes up the next day, does the animals, and then he has to fight off the crows and the vultures all day long, and then he's tired, and he falls into this dreamlike state, and then he feels this heaviness of God, the presence of God in with him. And then all of a sudden, through the parts of the animal, doesn't, Abraham doesn't walk. Instead, it's a, a smoking pot and the tor- a lit torch, the fire and cloud. Remember, the Israelites on, had just gone through 40 years as they're listening to Moses. 40 years of God guiding them through the desert. A, a cloud of smoke and, uh, by day, fire by night. They immediately know what this means. This is God. This is Jehovah. He's the one who cuts the covenant. And he's the one who obligates himself to making sure that everything that is in this covenant comes about. He's the party who will be torn apart. He's essentially saying, Abraham, if these things don't happen, you will know that I am not a holy, righteous, good God. I do not deserve your worship. Instead, I deserve to be torn apart limb for limb. Incredibly gracious. And so it begs the question, in this kind of covenant between God, a covenant of grace and Abraham, where do we find ourselves in this covenant, right? How are we participants in the Abrahamic covenant? Verse 6 says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. With this, Abraham, with this covenant, Abraham, uh, God tells Abraham and everyone who is in Abraham's tree of faith something very important. That real security and a lasting eternal heritage comes from trusting in God and in his covenantal promises. The promises and the prophecies of the Abrahamic covenant ultimately point us to the greater new covenant of Jesus Christ, which we celebrated this morning through the Lord's Supper. I appreciated how Jonathan set up the Lord's Supper and connected the dots between God's covenant of grace with humanity that we see even here with Abraham and what we enjoy each day and on Sundays when we come together as followers of Jesus Christ. Those of us who rest in the the truth and in the promises of the new covenant, we do so in solidarity with Abraham. And our point of solidarity is verse six. Verse six is the point of solidarity between those of us who are under the new covenant and Abraham and his covenant. Uh, this is seen, well, in fact, one writer says it like this. One writer says that verse six is the John three sixteen of the New Testament. It is such an important verse that three or, or two of God's apostles, James and Paul, use it in three of their books to lay out and help us understand what it means to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ, to be declared righteous. And they, they use this very verse. James says it's through this verse that Abraham is designated a friend of God. And so, in other words, for us to no longer be God's enemies, but to be God's friends, it hinges on this idea of believing, trusting. That's what the word means, to trust, to lean your entire weight upon God. And as a result of this, God declares us righteous. Paul, 
He uses this verse in the book of Romans and also in the book of Galatians. Remember last week I said in the, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed. In the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. Good. Some of you are actually fantastic. Okay. And so when, if we want to understand the significance of verse 6, let's go to the New Testament where it's used and it's applied and it's expanded to us, us who are under the new covenant. Paul says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now set the context. This is the peak point of the book of Galatians. The Judaizers have been telling the Christians of this church that the way you become the friend of God, the way you are made right with God and declared righteous is you believe in Jesus. Yes, that's a good thing to do, but you also perform. You do good things. You obey the law. You get circumcised and the diet and everything else that's in the You have to, to receive Jesus, trust in Jesus, yes, and you bring something to the table, your good works. And Paul's arguing against this, and he, he points them right back to the father of their faith, paragon of their faith, the father of Israel, Abraham himself. He says in verse 8, the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then he continues to talk on about how important it is for us to realize that we cannot be declared righteous before God through our own works because every one of us are sinners. Our sin creates this entire debt that it's impossible for us to repay. We cannot be declared righteous through ourselves. In fact, our, the faith that is expressed in our life is not the grounds for God blessing us and declaring us pardoned from our sins and righteous. He, does, he doesn't declare us righteous because he says, oh, how about that? Out of all the scumbags down there, Keith has faith. I'm going to declare him righteous. It's not like God looked at the ancient world and said, man, they're all, man, they're as bad as they were before. The, well, look at there. Abraham has faith. How about that? I'm going to declare him righteous as a reward for being a man of faith. Being declared righteous is not a reward for the fact that he was a man of faith. Remember, Abraham was a pagan, and he was called out of a pagan land. Faith is the gift of God that he gives us. Faith is the channel through which we receive the blessings of what Christ has accomplished. And what has he accomplished? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Abraham, so far in the book of Genesis, is clearly a priest before God. He's building altars. He's making sacrifices. He's clearly their version of a king, right? And we're going to see, we see here in this chapter, he receives a vision like prophets. And then in chapter 20, he's actually designated and referred to as a prophet. In so many respects, Abraham is a a perfect forerunner of Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. And so as a prophet, what Paul is saying in Galatians is Abraham received insight into the gospel 
into the plans of God. He, he's like all those other prophets that Peter refers to in 1 Peter 1, who says they received this revelation from God and then they scratched their heads wondering, what does that mean? I don't quite understand that part. What are you up to there, God? But they at least got the gist of the gospel. And as a result, Abram trusted in that message from God. And by trusting in that message from God, God declares him righteous. And church, that's the same thing that happens to us. Abraham, he, he looked forward to that one person who would come from his family line who would fulfill that promise in Genesis 3, that first chapter of the book of grace, to be the seed to undo sin. He believed that God, through him, was going to provide someone who would be the antidote for his sin and for all the sins of God's people. And he trusted in God's promise of a Savior. In short, he was trusting in Christ to do for him what he could not do for himself. And he was trusting that God would give him the righteousness that he needed so that he could be reconciled to God and be called God's friend. And so each one of us, we participate in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in the same way, believing God and it's counted as righteousness. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter four makes Genesis 15, six, the keystone, the, the central part of the entire chapter. And at the end of the chapter, as he's wrapping everything up, here's what he says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. What's the next four words? Read them out loud with me, church. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up to our, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Every one of us who trusts and the promises of God in Jesus Christ joins in Abraham's family tree of faith. As he goes on, and we become Abraham's seed. We become a part of that massive number of people that no human being will ever be able to count. And we're gonna go into that more in detail next week in chapter 17. If you're a Christian already, you know how this joins you to a cosmic family and gives you an eternal inheritance. This week, meditate on the blessings that we receive because we, like Abraham, are part of the family of faith. And if you do not know Christ as your Savior, then today is the day for your salvation. Why not today reject the effort and the good works and the self-performance, reject your self-lordship and turn to Christ and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. He is the antidote for your sin. He is the one whose righteousness is so extensive that you too can be the friend of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of grace that we see in Abraham. We rejoice that you are a God who is holy and omnipotent and all of these incredible characteristics, but you are also this loving, gracious God who condescended to come to the earth to make a covenant with Adam and Eve and all of humanity, to make a covenant with Noah, to make a covenant with Abraham, and to make a covenant with all of us through your son, Jesus Christ. 
Heavenly Father, we praise you for how gracious you are. It's beyond our understanding. May those who have not yet experienced your saving grace do so even today or this week. May they know how gracious you are in Jesus Christ. To his glory I ask these things. Amen.